Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Molly Baker. A digital marketing pro based in North Carolina, Molly is the founder and CEO at Indie Consulting. Over the past three years, she's built a fully remote team of boffins around the world who believe that whilst data may be king, emotion is the foundation of marketing. A keen runner and skier, she believes that nothing is more valuable than people's time and thoughts, except maybe coffee. Molly says, despite the wave of new tools, technology and data, human intervention, empathy and emotion are still crucial in connecting with consumers. Welcome to the show, Molly. Hi, thanks for having me. Right, let's start with seven quick fire questions. Mac or PC? Mac. Run or ski? Ooh, Uh, probably run. Seafood or barbecue? Seafood. (laughs) There's always a couple of ridiculous ones. Uh, Ben or Jerry's? (laughs) Oh, God. Um, Probably Ben. I hope they never listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On the beach or in the mountains? Probably the mountains. Nice. Uh, Two more. Light buyers or loyalty? Loyalty. And finally, agency or client side? I'm going to have to go with agency. Nice. It's the correct answer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. To to kick things off, we always like to uh, explore and celebrate the often non-linear and sometimes quite remarkable routes that guests have taken to get to where they are in their career. So can you tell us what what was your first ever job? And given you did a bachelor's degree in human services, could you tell us a bit about what is involved in that and how it led to your first proper job in marketing? Yeah, of course. Um, Let's see. So my first job, I was a like supreme babysitter in my neighborhood. Um, (laughs) My parents were... Very keen to have us all working. I'm one of four kids, but to have us all working as soon as possible. So I think I started babysitting when I was probably 11 or 12, like a kid, basically too young to be watching someone else's children. Um, (laughs) But from there, I actually ended up having, when I got to probably be 14 or so, um, I would host summer camps. So I would like put on these big summer camps for like 10 to 15 kids. And my mom would make me keep a cost sheet. So at the end of each week, if I had had her buy anything for me, like paper towels or food or something like that, I'd have to pay her out at the end of the week, which honestly, looking back on was like a pretty incredible experience. So that was probably my first job job. But I also, I was a hostess at a barbecue restaurant. I was a lifeguard. I coached running camps, so I've had a lot of of pre-career jobs. 
Wow. And going back to your uh, supreme babysitting days and slightly slightly later running your summer camps, was that was that the same with, with all four of you, you with you and your siblings? Did your did your parents have you all working on these little schemes and, and enterprises? <laughs> I think I probably had the most I shouldn't say that. My siblings will hate me for saying this. The the most pressure, not pressure, but push to have my own little setup. But I think my sister had like a plant watering business that she had for a couple of years and she had flyers and like marketing materials and such. So oh, wow. yeah, yeah. That's so cool. A- That's really cool. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, but you presumably still found time for school and, and normal kind of <laughs> children's activities. Yeah. Yes. No, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So then, you know, from there I went to college and to be honest, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was just undecided in my major, even for, I think, the first two years of school. Um, And then finally chose human services, which is kind of a blend between a psych and a sociology major. So I have different dual minors in both of those as well. And the hope was to to take that major and then eventually go to grad school. And I wanted to be in social work, or at least I thought that I did. Um, So that was the path that I ended up choosing. And then my senior year of college, I changed my mind, much to my parents' uh, demise once again. Um, But that was the goal at the time was to, to be a social worker. Wow. And do you think there's any any parallels with, with that and, and what you do now? I imagine empathy is probably a consistent one. I do. I do. I mean, I look back at the classes that I took in school and I even took specific classes around like how to have conversations with people and um, get them to open up. And some of that, I think, was some of the most valuable uh, schooling that I've had just to be able to learn some of those different techniques. And I think that applies now so much to the client services side of of my job, but also on the marketing front, just at the end of the day, marketing is just having an understanding of people and how to connect with them, I believe. So I think that it ended up helping me more than I could have thought that it would. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think retrospectively, it's nice to make that observation. Funnily enough, the previous episode that we released as we record this at least, last week was with the wonderful, now 85 years old Drayton Bird, one of the most esteemed copywriters, certainly from these shores. And he made exactly the same points. Um, and he, he told a story of his first ever interview to become a copywriter in an agency. And the CEO of the agency basically just said to him, well, why should I hire you? You've got no experience. And he said, yes, but I understand people. Um, and I think that's exactly exactly you know to your point is is so key but then that's retrospectively so at the time how did that how what what did it look like that move from your human services degree and your major to marketing how did that happen yeah so I actually have a bit bit of a you know stereotypical story of a girl studying abroad and figuring out something in her life. So um, I studied abroad in Perugia in Italy, my second semester of my junior year. And I got over there and I was so happy to be there and I didn't have enough credits. I wasn't taking enough enough courses. And the only classes that I could get into were either global marketing or like global art studies or something along those lines. 
And I was like, you know, I'm going to take the art class. Like this definitely, this is, this is the, that's the right choice. Go to Italy, take an art class. Sure. And I called my dad and he was like, why in the world would you take this art class? Like you need, don't call me long distance on this cell phone to ask me a question like this. There's only one answer. It's the global marketing (laughs) class. And I was like, okay, fair enough. So um, I took the global marketing class and I had this amazing professor, Ray Shaw. I think of him to this day. And it just gave me a whole new view on marketing and business. And we worked with different local businesses in the um, Perugia area and region. And it was just such an incredible experience. And I was like, you know, wait, this is cool. Like this, I think I could really see myself doing this. So I went back to Philadelphia where I was in school and just started aggressively signing up for internships because I figured, well, if I don't have the classes to justify this, uh, at least I can get the working experience. So um, I got my first internship with College Fashionista, which was like very hot at the time. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they were, it was this woman who started a, this fashion company startup and she was having people write in columns from different campuses around the US and she had just expanded globally. And I started doing some writing for them um, at Villanova. And then I applied to be an editor and I got an editor job to do all of the global columns. And I was like, this is so cool. I'm so lucky that I have this global job. And then I realized that I was basically rewriting articles for everyone whose English English was not their first language. So it was not as glamorous as I had hoped, but it was a great sort of first step into the into the digital marketing world. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's great that I think it's, it's easy to... It's easy to, to kind of understate the significance of, of seeing the world and your point again earlier about understanding people. I think travel traveling gives you gives you that kind of experience and insight that otherwise is probably almost impossible to replicate. But I love the idea that you were aggressively applying for things as well when you got back. So <laughs> I was gonna ask you how aggressively you were applying, but I imagine you just mean, you know, applying for <laughs> fairly frequently. Yeah, yeah. I I, so I worked with them and then I did some, I got an internship with um, Toll Brothers, which is like a national home builder to do all of their social media and write blogs for them. So I was writing blogs on how, you know, how to apply for a mortgage and things that I had no clue about, um, which was fun. And then I did some work for a nonprofit as well. That was like a women's handbag uh, startup and they were raising money for women in India. And that was also an incredible experience. So I think I got you know so much more out of just having that hands-on working experience than probably most of my classes, to be honest. But it was, I learned a lot in each different scenario. So it set me up well to get my first like real, real job post-school. Yeah, and and um, sorry, going back just just um, a step or two. How long were you in um, in, in Italy? I was there for five months. Wow. And have you been back since? Do you go back regularly or or is that obviously during the pandemic, it's not possible? (laughs) Yeah, not since pre-pandemic, unfortunately, but I actually have a very good friend who lives there. And I also had a client in Italy until the pandemic that I was visiting pretty regularly as well. I hilariously took Italian all through college just so I could speak it when I studied abroad. And uh, <laughs> I am not Italian and never have the opportunity to speak Italian. It's rough to say the least, but I tried. 
yeah. Oh, that's all you can do. That's all we can do. That's wonderful. And then, so, so going back to um, the internships, and then, and then, I suppose more recently, the other roles that you, you touched on. Did it did it become much clearer quite quickly then from Perugia onwards that marketing was definitely the decision that you wanted to make because so many people go through life not really knowing what they want to do and I suppose the point of us asking the first question that we always ask on this podcast is really to highlight how key life experience is and that the path to whichever career is right for you is never simple and straight. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that is all true. I think with each one of my experiences, I learned more about what I liked and what I didn't like. I think the best thing about marketing is that it's such a vast space. So, you know, I started as a writer and a social media manager and then continued to sort of try different types of roles within these internships and then in my career as well to figure out what I actually wanted to do and what actually gave me energy and I felt accomplished within or satisfied with. Um, and I think all of those steps led me to to being where I am now. Uh, I've certainly had my moments of doubt, but I think by just continuing to try and do new things, it gives you that direction of what needs to happen next. Yeah, 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 yeah. And was it that hunger to to try and learn new things what led to your decision to leave? You were at Ben and Jerry's at the time to, to to found your own consultancy. Yes, it was. Yeah, I had an incredible experience at Ben and Jerry's, and you know, pre Ben and Jerry's was living in New York City in the East Village, living this like post college, very fast agency fun life, and picked myself up and moved to Burlington, Vermont, which was a huge life change, bigger than I think I ever had expected it would be. Um, and had a great experience at Ben & Jerry's. And then after a few years, kind of found myself in a similar position of just really wanting something new again and and wanting to make myself uncomfortable to some extent. Um, and that did lead to me uh, leaving and then founding Indie. So Wow. And, and what was that? What was that like then that first year? Because um, correct me if I'm wrong, but presumably all of the previous challenges where you wanted to make myself uncomfortable. I love that, by the way, seeking out, you know, situations that make you feel uncomfortable and forcing yourself to learn. Presumably that first year setting up indie, there weren't people around you as there might have been previously to learn from. So did that kind of learning experience change quite dramatically because it was like deep end stuff? It did. It did. I honestly, it was one of the scariest things I've ever done, which I'm sure you can probably relate to. I honestly, at that point in my career, wasn't even sure if I wanted to keep doing marketing. Um, I left Ben and Jerry's and didn't really have a plan. To be totally honest, I I was interviewing for jobs out on the West Coast. I thought maybe I wanted to move to Seattle. I thought about like taking a gap like six months and going and leading like a bike tour in Europe, which people are like, what's going on with this girl? Um, <laughs> so I definitely was having a bit of a moment of, you know, do I not like marketing or do I not like the structures that I'm in or do I just need something new? And I, and I couldn't really figure out. It was only a few months of that sort of lost phase, I guess we'll call it. But I started consulting and someone told me really early on that I should just not refer to myself as a freelancer, 
referred myself as a consultant, set up the LLC, just put the foundation in place. And if you decide you don't really want to build a business that's bigger than you, like that's totally fine. But at least you've done some of that groundwork. And it was some of the best advice that I've ever been given because as I was consulting, and I think to your question, your original question came to the revelation that my learning and, and how I grow, I can't put that on anyone else other than myself. Like only I am accountable for my continued evolution and going out on my own and kind of taking this step just made me realize that in more clarity. And, um, I think that gave me so much energy, finally kind of figuring that out to some extent. And then from there, I was so energized by my independence and what I thought I could build and sort of the vision for that, that it just started taking motion, which was really amazing. And did you know early on what 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 you were setting out to create then so bigger picture bigger than than yourself individually or did you find yourself it just happened quite naturally and after say you know a year's time you kind of looked around and thought wow I've created this or did you did you have a clear idea of what you were creating to be honest no I did not (laughs) um I which goes very against my personality I'm I'm a bit of a planner I'm very like thoughtful about how I spend my time and my days. And this was sort of the first time that I kind of let things be as they were and and just took each week and each month at a time and transitioned and made changes based off of kind of how things were going and what was happening and what needed to happen next. But I would say within the first year, I didn't really have a vision for it. I wanted to keep doing the type of work that I was doing and hopefully bring on enough to hire someone, but I didn't really have a set vision of it. And then about a year in, I hired my first contractor and I was like, all right, I need to stop being a baby and just put pen to paper on what I want this to be. I think I was so afraid to do that in case it didn't turn out the way that I had it in my head that I just was putting it off. So Doing that, though, finally just gave it so much more. It made it more real than it had been, which I think I needed at the time. So I was overdue to, to just pick a, pick a lane to some extent. And it's, and it's been, it's been what, just over three years now. Is that right? Yeah, it'll be three years in October. Fantastic. So, and, um, so we've, we've talked on learning quite a lot. What, what do you think, if you can articulate it, what do you think you've learned from, from that? So obviously that first stage of hiring your first contractor was significant. I still remember our first hire at GASP, a lovely chap called George Thompson. Um, what, what have you learned from building that team? Because you've built a team that's based remotely around the US and, and the world indeed. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is... I've learned so much, honestly. You know, when I left Ben and Jerry's, I was I wanted to do my own thing so badly that I was okay just it being me. And it's been such a joy these past couple of years building a team and having other people's thoughts and energy and getting to experience building this company with other people, I think has been so much more rewarding than I could have even imagined that it would be. Um, so that part of it, I don't think I realized I would be enjoying as much as I am. And how do you collaborate as a team, given you aren't you aren't face to face, typically? Yeah. So, 
we are on video calls all the time, um, which occasionally gets old, but we, we power through. Uh, we do all of the Slack and Teams and whatever channels our clients use. I think I have like, you know, 17 different IM chat systems these days, it feels like. Um, but we do. And now since with COVID, hopefully leaving us, fingers crossed. We do try to make an effort to get together in person. I'm trying to do it at least quarterly just to have that time of a couple like really focused days on spending time together and working together and um, getting to know each other outside of the computer screen. So hopefully that's something that we can continue to do in the future. I think there's a lot of value that we get out of those days. So, But I do think it's just a conscious effort of not getting on a call and just immediately talking about work and taking a couple minutes to remind ourselves that we're all people and have other lives going on. So it seems to be going well so far, though. Fingers crossed. Yeah, great. And I mean, funny enough, you, you, you donated a brilliant isolated talk um, and you spoke about avoiding Zoom fatigue, which I think I've, I've, I've certainly felt that over lockdown. Can you, can you share some of the tips um, to, to do just that, to avoid that fatigue for anyone who, who isn't familiar with your talk, which we'll link to in, in this listing? Yeah, of course. I mean, a couple of the key things, I think the energy that you show up with on a call sort of sets, sets the stage for how things are going to go. So I try to be intentional and I, I think my team tries to be intentional about bringing the positivity right off the bat. And it just makes things so much easier and more enjoyable. And, you know, outside of that, I do think that taking breaks and getting outside and kind of recognizing when you're sort of over it is really important. Like it's not sustainable for all of us to just be on these video calls for 12 hours a day, every day, and not need a break from that to think differently. So I think that that has been uh, something that I try to remind my team of a lot of take your time when you need your time, uh, because we want you want only the best energy being brought into these conversations. So it's more beneficial to me that they take a time out when it's needed versus just continuing to power on. But, you know, I think however you can manipulate your schedule to make that happen is, is worth doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. Well, I said, I think, um, I, I mean, it's, 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 there's, there's been a huge range of examples of how businesses have either managed to or not managed to cope with the conditions we've been, you know, forced to work under in the last couple of years now. Um, and some have adopted to it very well. And, and you know, I have no, I'm not, uh, uh, what's the word? I'm not ashamed of admitting that I, I really struggled during lockdown. And I mentioned to you prior to recording that being back in, physically in an office um, has helped me but then I think there's so many trivial kind of sounding tricks that people have done to to introduce the work working environment in their home because as I've as I've mentioned before on um, a webinar with the clear channel it's not as if it was an opt-in and, and work has literally invaded our our homes over the last couple of years so taking that time out uh, to recognize that the, the the significance of, of taking time out and going outside and away from the screen is, is huge. Definitely. Definitely. It's so needed. And to your point, I mean, if you're having that working environment in your house, setting it up in a way that you actually feel comfortable. Like I think, you know, the first, even though I was working remotely pre 
COVID, I was traveling a lot. And then being in full lockdown at home, initially, it was like, I didn't, I was, I wanted to be just dependent on my laptop and not get a monitor and not get a desk. And it's like, okay, let's, let's call it what it is and like get a proper setup here so that you can actually work efficiently. So I think there's something to be said for that as well. Definitely, definitely. What I, what I really like, Molly, about how you've described the team at Indy and how you've built it and, and that recognition of, of uh, people, people's time and people being people is, is again, that empathy. Uh, you gave a recent talk at Zmelt on the art and science of data-driven digital marketing, and I alluded to it in your introduction that you believe that nothing is more valuable than people's time and thoughts. Now, in that instance, we're talking about in terms of marketing, but it sounds like that's just as true internally with you and your team as it is about marketing and the services that you provide. Um, So can you expand a bit more on what you mean by that for our audience in terms of your marketing beliefs and practice? Of course. Yeah. So very true on both points you just made that I that is something that I believe when it comes to marketing, but also our internal team, Um, I think you know, time and and thoughts are finite resources. And there's only so many hours in the day. And there's only so much that any of us can sort of retain within our knowledge and brain space. Uh, And it's something that I take really seriously with people on my team. Um, You know, I recognize that, that they're giving me two of their most valuable resources. and, And I don't take that lightly. And we translate that into our marketing, just given how how much we're all consuming in terms of content and messages. And now even more so with such a fragmented buying ecosystem, it's we're constantly being bombarded with different things to buy, try, hear, listen to. It, it's nonstop. So if we take that same sort of mentality to the end consumer that we're looking to connect with, then that just helps us, I think, to level up the work that we're doing because we're we're trying to take a really valuable space in someone's day. And how do we make sure that it's worth it? I think, I, you know, it's it's not given that those resources are limited, we shouldn't be doing work that's subpar because um, it's really valuable that people are giving us that time and their thoughts. Definitely, definitely. Well, it's, it's really encouraging to hear you say that. And it's really encouraging to hear someone who... Um, is who comes from a more digital rather than I mean I don't like the whole digital versus traditional type conversations that people have about marketing but one thing which I think can be said quite fairly of a lot of digital channels or at least the practices of a lot of digital marketing is that they can be very intrusive and they're not at all in some instances respectful of people's time you know whether it's the clickbait type articles that you might see on online and advertising or the ads that are uh, targeting and using data in a very disrespectful way. So, I suppose that there, of course, has to be there has to be a right way of doing things. And I think, regardless of channel and regardless of media, if you are respectful of people's time and the people you're trying to communicate with, then that I mean that can't be a bad starting point. Hopefully, it's a good place to start. I I think in the digital space specifically, it is such a gray area right now of what's right and wrong and what are the ethics behind some of this data-driven marketing. Uh, It's something that we talk about a lot as a team. We have weekly team meetings where the agenda is always changing, but we recently had a conversation around like what would be red flags that and what red flags have we seen in our client work that 
we don't feel comfortable with and how do we bring those to the table to discuss internally and with our clients too when we feel like something isn't following kind of that mantra of of respect but it's there's no one's made a playbook really for this yet so it's definitely a space <laughs> where a lot is left to be discovered yeah i wonder if there is a conflict of sorts there or at least I, I, i'd be keen to understand your thoughts on on some of the I suppose, the, the, the bad practices of, of the digital world. I know that until clicks aren't monetized, which I just don't see happening anytime soon, there will always be some kind of behaviors online that kind of fake results and at the, at the expense likely of the consumer. But I think it's tricky. Well, I certainly believe it's tricky as someone who runs an agency in the, in, in the UK. I find it very tricky to give reliable and accurate measures of a lot of the digital work that we do knowing that it is still respectful and, and, and true. But, but, but I think that murkiness exists everywhere. Um, so it takes people like you and, and, and others to champion the, 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 the empathy and the respect that's required to do what we do well. Agree. And I think as much as we can take that accountability of asking ourselves and, and our teams asking ourselves, would I want to be getting this message right now? Would I be okay with this? If I knew I was being targeted in this way, does that feel like it's crossing the line for me? Uh, I think it's important for us at Indy at least to take that accountability and not just rely on platforms changing their targeting options or the data pass back that they give us, but more, would we be okay with this? And I, and I think you know, trying at least again to start there feels like a good first step versus just relying on others to kind of show us the way. And I mean, there is, I mean, have you got any tips for how people can best use and understand the data that marketers have at their disposal now? Because the increase in in just the sheer amount of data available uh, is, is, you know, astonishing really when you look at it over the last, last few years. It is. It's very overwhelming. Uh, and we have a lot of conversations about this with the the clients that we work with. You know, I think always starting with what's the end objective and what are we trying to provide the consumer um, is the best place to start. And if you can kind of open that dialogue with your data uh, to ask, like, what are we looking for here and what would be an ideal scenario then at least we can start to pinpoint the different metrics that might fall or pieces of information that might fall within that data set and data groups to be able to understand if we're on track or not on track. So I think with with the data world today, the inputs are just as are more valuable probably than the output to some extent. And knowing what you're hoping to do, it's, it just helps to figure out that path a little bit quicker than trying to look at everything and then digest what it all means. Yeah, well said, well said. I think start, yeah, you're absolutely right. So start with the objectives. And then once that's actually specific and, and, and agreed, you can then look back at what metrics might, you know, hint that you're reaching those objectives. Yes. Yeah. And I think there's sort of this like folklore right now, too, that all of this data is available and everybody knows everything about everyone, especially in the marketing world, right? Like we're all just sitting here and we know something like everything that you've been doing this morning. Um, and <laughs> that's not really the case, right? I mean, I I think especially if you start with what are we actually trying to achieve and what does that objective look like, then we're going to look at the data points that are relatable back to those questions. Um, it's impossible to 
to, to digest everything at this point, I believe. So hopefully that puts people's mind at ease a little bit as well. Yeah, it does. No, I'm sure it will do. And I'm sure it does. Because I mean, I, I found that really reassuring, especially your take on that and how you've explained it. I think that's really reassuring. Funny enough, I um I, I may have mentioned this once before in a previous episode, but I come from a group of people or friends, at least, who the majority of my network have gone into more uh, classic kind of arts <laughs> than than apply. I see it as, as pure versus applied. And I think marketing is applied creativity, whereas a lot of my friends are artists and, you know, that sort of that sort of land, which is very different to ours. And I think they think I sit in an office all day and press different colored buttons that all say evil on them. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I understand that you have a a, a, a quite brave, I suppose, but counter argument to Byron Sharp's point of view on on brand loyalty in how brands grow. So his view is, I suppose, that the significance of of, of loyalty is 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 at least overstated. What's your take on loyalty, and and how does that differ, perhaps, to to what Byron? Byron says. Yeah, so I do have a, a a hot take on this for sure. I think there's a lot to be said for building brands at scale and and doing that through reaching large groups of people at a certain frequency. It makes sense, right? These people need to see your message, understand it quickly, and you need to do it enough that they hopefully think of you when they're in the grocery store aisle. But I do think that most recently in the past few years with this e-commerce boom and the continued sort of digitization of not just our communications, but our buying world as well, our commerce ecosystem, there's even more options than there were before and more places to buy, more competitors to are popping up every day and, and are taking space and share from your brands. And I think that at the end of the day, there, it's almost not worth having a brand if you don't have loyalty to that brand or try to drive loyalty to that brand because then you just get into a pricing and promotions war. If you take away that brand building aspect that's based off of feeling a connection or some sort of identification between the consumer and the brand itself, then it just comes down to, well, what's the better option from a from a price and promo standpoint? So I do think that there's a case to be made for just continuing to focus on loyalty and having people want to choose you over others because you have that connection with them and you've built that connection and repeat purchase is just as important as getting that one-time trial. If you can't bring somebody in and, and keep them, it's just a constant cycle, I think, of prospecting, which I don't know if that's the best way to grow something long-term. Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, I, it's, fun, it's funny, actually, because I think on two two specific points we've touched on on the recording so far, there's things which instinctively I, th- I felt like I was going to disagree with you on. And, and actually, <laughs> when I hear you say it, I actually think well, I'm just nodding along because, but, but, but perhaps probably because I see, I've got a, um, a marketing 101 slide, which I use sometimes when I'm discussing brand with with clients and you know whoever it might be and it's just a very simple axis with brand on one end and commodity on the other and the more you you can build that brand and see something as a bottle of evian versus a bottle of water for example the more you will enjoy things like loyalty and repeat purchase and 
uh, being able to charge a premium versus when the consumer sees something more as a commodity, that it's going to be much more price sensitive, exactly as you as you say. So 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 perhaps it's just it's all wrapped up in that value of brand that you need to build over time in order to 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 enjoy the, the you know the financial I suppose benefits that come with that. I think so, and I you know I think with that piece, I have we work with so many brands that their number one job to be done is increase household penetration. That's what it's all about. That's what we're out here to do. And I recently have had conversations and with them and would argue that, yes, there's a role for that being the objective, but we shouldn't forget about the sort of maintenance of existing customers and brand loyalists and advocates. And I think it's easy to forget that sometimes that that core group will end up doing a lot for you over time and are your insight generators and ones that give the product feedback and talk about you to their friends. And that's a really important group to continue to cultivate. So how do you think kind of more dual objective to make sure that you're keeping your base engaged while also trying to prospect and bring new consumers into the brand as well? Yes. And and do do you see any, any variation in that uh, belief depending on the category, for example. I do. I think some are some categories are it's just more part of their nature, like health and wellness, for example. Once you bring someone into that space, if you're selling supplements or a product that's that's used regularly, almost on a, a certain cadence, then maintaining that base group and and ensuring that they they continue to stay locked into their subscription model or um, regular purchase cycle is really important. I think with some other big brands within the CPG space, they're not thinking about that as much. But I also think that just as a result of being a brand that's been around for so long and and you just kind of assume, well, of course, I'm going to maintain my loyal people because we've been a brand for 20 years and therefore people must be about, have been buying us for a really long time. So I think it's just an easy place to sort of rest, especially if you've been around longer. And I also think, you know, every brand only has so much money. And I think that's usually what it comes back to is like, well, budgets are not unlimited. So if we have to choose where we're going to spend, we're just going to spend on getting new people to try us versus maintaining the the base group. And I think that's something that's worth considering and being looked at as well. Yeah, definitely. These things are never never so absolute, are they? No. The answer to most marketing questions is it depends. And I think <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you, need to, uh, you need to consider the wider the wider picture. Fantastic. I'm, I'm mindful of time. I told you I would um, I would drag this out longer than it than it should be, but I do have a couple of listener questions for you, Molly. Sure. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But we do have two, starting with Alex. Uh, Alex, who is from London, asks, as a new age marketing consultancy, what is your approach to client services and how do you get clients to trust what you are doing? Great question. So I think 
Our approach to client services is, I don't want to say simple, but it is quite simple. That's how we try to approach it. I like, I like simple. <laughs> Someone told me recently that, you know, if a strategy takes you more than five to 10 minutes to communicate, then it's not a very good strategy. And I was like, that's brilliant. I need to keep that in mind. Um, so I think, you know, when we think about our client services approach, it's really based on how do we become that trusted advisor for our client and build a relationship that cycles around mutual respect for what their goals are as a professional and a marketer and within their business. And we try to do sort of an in-sourced resourcing model to feel less like an executional partner that's just locked away in a room typing on a computer, but really invested in, in what this person's goals are and how we can best provide value to them. And we take that stance and position really early on, even in the like new business discussions, just to make it really clear that that's what our goals are. And um, we try to structure contracts and resource allocation to just allow for that to happen in the right way. Yeah, perfect. So it is very much a collaboration with the client as early as you can. Yes. Yeah. And I think on the on the trust piece and how you build trust, I think trust always comes down to the little things, you know, making sure that you show up on time and you always follow up with notes afterwards and you you start the conversation with, hey, this is what we heard last time we talked. And are we were we listening in the right way? Um, did we capture what you were hoping to communicate or where we were wanting to go next. Trust builds over time, I think, based off of just the day-to-day interactions that hopefully we can take and, and put a lot of thought towards just to ensure that we're we're here for the right reasons and we pay attention and we're good at what we do. And sure, case studies and, and research and showing that we're industry experts always helps. But I do think that building trust really comes just down to the day-to-day and showing up in the right way. Yeah, that's really good advice. Really good advice. Following up with notes and starting the next meeting with with a reminder is is, is great. I really like that. Excellent. Well, I'm no doubt Alex will too. Question two is, is all the way from Sydney from Elliot. Um, and Elliot says, when it comes to developing a target audience, what is your opinion on creating customer personas? Are they useful or simply stereotyping? I love this question. Tricky one. (laughs) I love this question. So I do not like customer personas. I, I see the benefit, especially from a creative perspective, but I do think to agree with the question that a lot of times it falls back on a stereotype and it's hard to generalize large groups of people back to one sort of personification. So I'm more of the belief of develop your target audience segments based off of usually a certain type of behavior. And that's based in a data point. So whether it's purchase-based groups or, I don't know, affinity buyers or something along those lines. I don't think that interests are bad, but a behavior usually is more concrete. And then how do you then create different variations of messaging and creative that you can test to then actually understand what these people want to see and hear from you? Um, I think is way more valuable than kind of boxing yourself in early on with a 
persona that then you can only deliver upon that singular persona. So I would almost say, yes, create the segments with a data-driven approach, but they are in fact probably broader. And then try different messaging tactics so that you can see what actually sticks. Yeah, brilliant answer. Brilliant answer. I think as with so many things in in our industry, it's... um, well, my own opinion, and Elliot probably doesn't care for my opinion, but I'm going to tell him anyway, is that it's fine as a, as a kind of means to an end. But you're, uh, you're, I'd certainly side with, with looking at more kind of behavioral and attitudinal data data points. But as a means to an end, you know, if, if they can be useful in some instances, perhaps. But, yeah, they're, they're, they are a bit, uh, a bit crude. I, I see them crudely used, at least. So the final part of the interview then, Molly, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Uh, And that starts with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? What advice I would give? I think I would say to just worry less and not try to plan everything because the beauty of life is not knowing what's going to come next. I think if we all knew what was going to happen next, then it would be boring. So if you don't have a plan for what your 5, 10, 20 years looks like, that's okay. You don't you don't really need to know that. I hate when people ask like, oh, "What's your 5-year plan?" It's like, "I don't know." Like, who knows? We could have a global pandemic next year and who who would know? Um so I think things like things change all the time and the best thing you can do is just to be open and curious and okay being uncomfortable and things will happen as they will yeah well said worry less is a great one i i i'll just quickly say you've reminded me of something i saw a long time ago which which every now and then pops up in my head and it was um it was a mock job interview script and the interviewer said uh, where do you see yourself in five years time and the applicant said celebrating five the five-year anniversary of you asking me that stupid <laughs> question <laughs> That's a great answer. Uh, right, number number two, Molly. If you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I would try, and this is a big ask, but I would try to banish um, negativity. I think, to be more specific, I think, especially in client services, a lot of times the things you talk about are the things that aren't going well. You know, what didn't the client like? What clients being irritating? What campaign? what was wrong with the campaign that we executed. And I would love to find a way to to celebrate the wins a bit more, both from a work perspective and a people perspective too. I think the same thing applies um, typically within an agency model. It's the people that aren't carrying their weight that are talked about versus the people that are consistent or crushing it every day. So probably just more a focus on you know, we're so lucky that marketing's really a fun space to work in and have careers in. And how do we just enjoy it a little bit more? Very good. Very good. I like that a lot. Um, number three, any books that you would recommend to our listeners? Now, these can be work related or, or entirely outside of this this industry. Yeah. So from a work perspective, um, The Great Client Partner by Jared Belsky Um, Jared was the former CEO at 360i, which was the agency that I worked at in New York for a few years. It's a fantastic book. Amazing for anyone who's in any type of client services related work and super well written, easy to read, very actionable. Uh, I think it's one of the best that I've read as it relates to my career. 
And then personally, I'm like such a sucker for historical fiction. Anything written by <laughs> Kristen Hanna, I love. She like writes these pieces about women who have done amazing things at different insane points in history, whether it was the Dust Bowl in the US um, or World War II in France. So super interesting if anyone's just looking for a good read. Okay, brilliant. Have you got a favorite Kristen Hanna book or should we just uh, pluck a few out for the for the listing? <sighs> the one I just read by hers is her latest. It's called Four Winds and it is about the Dust Bowl in Texas in ooh, like the 20s, I want to say. And it was fantastic. So I, I would recommend that one. Okay, awesome. Well, we'll link to that and the great client partner. And then number four, Molly, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you do the honours? Of course, yeah. So I would dedicate this episode to my family. Um, I think I joked early on in the episode that, you know, we all worked and had all this these crazy little side gigs, uh, but... <laughs> I there I have an incredible I have great parents I have great grandparents I have amazing siblings and I honestly don't think that I would be where I am today without just their support and their push honestly so um super grateful for them Oh wonderful okay well this this episode is very proudly dedicated to your family despite your 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 mother asking you to pay for all of those um, supplies <laughs> as a 14 year old I can but I imagine there were so many lessons lessons learned during that sounds wonderful Fantastic. definitely uh, so as a final call to action to everyone listening, if you if you check out this uh, podcast episode's listing itself, you will find links to, to Indie Consulting, you'll find links to The Great Client Partner, to, uh, we'll throw in a couple of extra Christian Hanna books just because um, it feels appropriate. We'll stick your Z-Melt talk, which I believe is available. If not, uh, we will... Uh, we will link to uh, your slide deck, if that is, and your isolated talks, which is which is wonderful. How else can can they get more Molly Baker? Yeah, so um, on our website, we do have an email newsletter sign up that uh, people can subscribe to if you want to hear any of the latest and greatest things that we have going on as a team. Um, and then I, I on Instagram, you're, I'm happy for anyone to follow. It's definitely more personal versus. Uh, professional but lots of traveling and hiking and skiing and running so yeah you can find me there as well nice one amazing well thank you so much for joining us molly it's been it's been a real pleasure thank you for having me this has been wonderful and finally thank you to everyone listening if you've enjoyed this episode please do share and review the pod keep questions and guest requests coming in to get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co.
Yeah, hey, hey. 